0: Welcome to The Connection Podcast. I'm Jason Keister, the show's producer, here with hosts, Drew Boreen and Lexi DeLuna. Let's get ready to connect with somebody new today. All right, we are live and ready to go. So welcome to The Connection Podcast. I am the host today, Jason Keister, and we have a special guest host with us actually here, Jordan Moon.
1: (laughs) How's it going, everybody?
0: We have Lexi DeLuna. And then we have a guest that we are very excited about today. The one, the only Kevin Durfee. The
2: Durf, the only one I know. The yeah.
0: Durf. <laughs> All right, welcome. Well, we wanted to start out asking some questions about your life. Um, I'm gonna kick it to Jordan here. What, what do you got to ask for Durf?
1: Well, first off, I want to talk a little bit about Durfee. Uh, Durfee is one of the best men you're gonna find in the planet. Uh, He's a spiritual giant. Um, If I can say anything about Durfee, he's probably one of the greatest teachers and mentors of youth. Uh, He's a career of coaching, career of teaching, great man, Uh, great father, great friend. Uh, So I'm excited, excited, Durf, to have you here, excited to talk to you, excited to hear some fun stories. He's one of the greatest storytellers you'll ever hear. So I'm excited for this episode (laughs) and uh, excited to get to know you a little bit better.
0: I'm excited and I agree with all those things and he's better at all those things than golf. I'll just say yeah. that.
1: That's pretty darn good at golf yeah. too. He right. is
0: good at he golf. golf, good at golf. I'm underselling right
1: it. <laughs> well, man, I want to, I want to first get into, uh, I'd love to hear how you initially gained a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those, uh, kind of those initial experiences that, that led you to have a testimony of, of Jesus Christ and then hopefully be able to go into what made you go on a mission and then important experiences on your mission that kind of framed who you were today, if that's okay with you.
2: So, okay. Obviously, um, I'm gonna start with my mom and my dad. I I, uh, have two wonderful parents. They're both not with us anymore right now, but uh, my dad was a teacher, he was a coach. My mom also was a teacher. Um, You're talking about storytelling, my dad was a master. Kids loved him. I have an older brother about a year and a half older, and a younger sister that's six years younger, and we grew up in a great home, in a great place in Baker, Oregon, where I just thought it was the small center town. of the small universe, town. small town, 10,000 yeah. people, and we just had a blast. Um, I grew up in the church, grew up going to church. Um, the one thing I never, you know, I, I guess I always thought that I was going to go on a mission, because we talked about that, and my brother went on a mission, right when he was supposed to, and And uh, I got up at Turex College, and it hit me that I was going to turn 19 that November. And something scared me badly. And what scared me is I knew that I was going to have to be at some point on a mission looking people in the eye and telling them that I knew that Jesus was the Christ. And I had never asked. I'd always believed that, but I had never asked, so I'm not sure that I knew that. And so I remember kneeling down in that november and asking for that testimony for that witness and i continued with that prayer Um, it was march march came Uh, so it's a few months later i was at a sacrament meeting there at college and we began to sing a closing song just like i've done my whole life and the song was i know that my redeemer lives and i was surrounded by roommates and and other girls from the branch and the ward and as we began to sing that song by the time i got to the second verse Tears were coming down my cheeks. And it was like, what is happening to me? And I felt such a strong, powerful witness that the words of that song were true. So cool. And uh, at that point, I knew that I could look other people in the eye and testify that Jesus is the Christ, that I know that my Redeemer lives. And it was right after that sacrament meeting that I went to the bishop of that student ward and told him I'd like to put my papers in to serve a mission and so that's got that started now I'm not saying that when I got on my mission that I uh was ready to know everything I uh was a very typical teenage kid and I think teenagers in the 70s weren't as prepared as maybe teenagers now I see these kids going on missions now and I'm amazed I I Mm -hmm. teach seminary and, and I'm amazed at them They know their uh, stuff. They know their
1: stuff. They know their stuff.
0: They know their stuff. I'm I'm amazed, too. I look at Brandon DeLuna. um, I'm just naming a couple of people, but Liam Woodward, and they give talks, and I'm like, they're one of the best speakers that we have. Period. 100%. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was a blessing for me that I got called to the Southwest, and in my mission, um, it seemed that every door we opened, people had a Bible in their hands. They were either Baptist or Church of Christ. And Where did you start? You said Southwest. I, Where? I served in Albuquerque, but I was never in Albuquerque. I okay. flew in and flew out. So I started in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and then went to El Paso, Texas, and then up to east-central New Mexico in a town called Portales. had a college, Eastern New Mexico University there. It's a college town. And then I finished up near Taos in northern New Mexico. Um, but it was a blessing to me because... Because people we talked to were eager to talk, and they were eager to talk about the scriptures, and I really did, I think, have a blessing of teaching a lot and learning a lot about the scriptures. So I'm really glad I didn't go to some exotic place where I never taught a lesson. It was a real blessing for me.
1: What I love about that story is is when you were trying to find out if the church was true or trying to find your testimony, that didn't come right away, right? You're, You're in school, and you're struggling. And yeah. here we wanted to find that answer, and um, I, I love how the the Lord works like that, right? He, he makes us struggle a little bit, and He comes and gets us in those times of need and that times of where we're the most humble, and, yeah. and that Spirit hits us. I love that example, how, this, how the Lord works in mysterious ways and comes in His own time.
2: Absolutely true, and I totally wasn't expecting
1: that, but it came. Now, when you first got on to your mission, uh, you had a, a rude awakening. <laughs> Tell us that story. That's a good so, story.
2: So I had never read the Book of Mormon. I'd never read, I mean, I'd read parts, but i had never read obviously all the Bible either. And uh, I was just like uh, fresh fresh to go. And uh, my fourth day out, a a guy that was about 19 or 20 pulled up in his car to my companion and I, and he rolled down his window and we recognized him as kind of the local youth pastor of the uh, Protestant denominations. And his first words were, I, I can prove to you guys why your church isn't right why isn't, and true. Exactly
1: what you want to hear. As a my right. up,
2: but uh, my companion was ready to say, Well, thanks, but no thanks. And, and uh, he could tell I was looking at him. So he said, All you, all you have to do is turn to the book of Gideon in, the, in your Bible. <laughs> and so I whipped out my Bible and started looking. And then he started laughing and pulled away. And my companion looked at me and said, Elder, there is stuff. no book of Gideon. <laughs> and that was a rude awakening. Yeah. Couldn't couldn't find
0: it. Do, so after that, do you just walk out with your tail between your legs?
2: Uh yes and no. I, I uh because of my sports background, I was determined to 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 uh read <laughs> and to learn a little bit more.
0: Have you used the Book of Gideon trick on anybody? Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> just a something to think about trying. Yeah. Maybe maybe in seminary. Yeah, I'm surprised I haven't.
3: We get a lot of us. I that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Mine doesn't have that. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, That's awesome.
1: So you got home from your mission. After you got home from your mission, uh, what did you do? You went
2: straight to school. So I'd gone to a year of college before, and I went uh, got back middle of August, and uh, for my mission. And by September first, was up at uh, at that time, Rick's College, BYU, Idaho. And um, went there for that year and graduated with the associate degree and then went down to BYU in Pro Bowl and um, and ended up getting my degree down there. Met my wife my fourth year, my last year of college. This is
1: I wanted to get into this. You need to tell – we need to hear the story of how you met your wife um, and and how you decided who you were going to date. Okay.
2: So about uh, three days before classes started, my roommate and I, one of my roommates, there were six of us, we all knew each other, and, and uh, my roommate and I decided to go to the store, which was about three blocks away, to get some stuff. And as we were walking about a block from our apartment, we walked past uh, a house that had um, students in it, and there were two girls sitting out front playing Yahtzee. And um, my my buddy and I looked Is at Is this other, something
0: people just did back then? <laughs> I was going to say, we don't do that <laughs> like, days. We don't. Yeah, I don't know what they <laughs> You'd have to ask her on it.
2: But they were playing Yahtzee, and, and uh, my companion and I, or my roommate and I first noticed that they were, they were cute. So we said, hey, let's go talk to those girls. And so we did. And as we walked away from them, I looked at my, my uh, roommate and said, I'm going to ask that brunette out. He said, I, actually, I want to ask her out. And so we argued a little bit about that, and then we flipped a coin. We decided whoever won the coin flip got to ask her out. And so we had a big uh, meeting that get together that night, kind of award social to get to know everybody. And she was there and I asked her out and ended up beginning to date her. And um, by January, I asked her to marry me. And I we the married
0: the following June. I
1: love the coin flip, man. That's, that's yeah. one of my favorite stories of all time. That was a good one.
0: Does Rhonda know about the coin flip? She knows about the coin flip <laughs>
1: now. She didn't then. Add...
0: Does she give you a hard time?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to tell her that, hey, I uh, dated you and not your roommate because it landed on heads or something?
2: Yeah. Well, no, no. We both wanted to, yeah. Neither of us asked out the roommate oh, okay. for some <laughs> reason. But, uh, but we both wanted to ask, out, ask Rhonda. So. Anyway, that's the way that worked. It was a good one. And you guys ended up getting married. you guys get married in the temple initially? We did in Oakland. Okay. Uh, She's from Northern California. And so um, we got married in the Oakland temple. Beautiful temple. Beautiful temple.
1: Talk about uh, the importance of getting married in the temple and getting married at the young age. I'm not
2: sure that I can even fully explain how important I feel that is. And I'm not sure that I even understand how important that is. But I know it's important. I know that when we were sealed, that our children upon their birth were sealed to us. And and I honestly think that at some point in the future, we will find out that that is way more important than we ever realized it was, yeah. uh, especially the family. You know, someone talked about a chain like a link, and it's really not a chain. It's, it's more like a chain link fence. When we think about who we're tied to when we think about aunts and uncles and grandparents and and it is a chain-link fence that we are bound together. And um, so anyway, I just thought that that was always a blessing. Our four children were all um, sealed and married in the temple when they got married, which I'm really pleased that they made that choice. And uh, anyway, I think it's very important. I, I remember the man's name. His name was Horace Ritchie. I met him one time in my life, one day, the day that he sealed us. But I'm grateful for Horace Ritchie and for uh, his life to be called as a temple sealer.
1: Now, we've kind of talked about this early stage of your life and the arguably uh, some of the most important parts of your life, you're, you're going into your mission, getting married. What advice would you have for youth coming up into that age, young men, young women, thinking about going on a mission? getting married and, and, and keeping the, the temple marriage important. What, what advice would you give to these youth coming well, up? Well,
2: I think that, first of all, go ahead and listen to your parents. Go ahead and listen to counsel <laughs> of your leaders. Um, don't try to, you know, forge your own path. They know, they've been there. And so when, they, when people say that it's important and that it will change your life and that it will give you a foundation, they're not kidding. And it's not easy. Missions aren't easy. Um, And then looking for a wife, I I remember in school, I used to talk, teach different classes, but often we would close the government books and we would just talk. And I would talk to the kids in my class about stuff that was important. And I talked a little bit about about, um, that topic, when you feel like you know who. And I said, you better think about this in advance. And I used a system called the pillar system with them. You know, some of those Greek temples still stand because the pillars were strong. And so I I told the kids, I I would tell my own kids the same thing. You don't need a ton of pillars, maybe four, maybe five, maybe six at the most. But a pillar, when you're looking for a spouse, might be something like they, they have a testimony. That's a pillar. A pillar might be that they're kind that they are humble, that they treat other people well. That's a pillar. Um, another pillar for me, you know, was was a sense of humor. I wanted to marry someone with a sense of humor. You so, got that. So at the point, that <laughs> got, sure. in my life, when I, you know, ran into to Rhonda, the pillars were all there and the pillars yeah. were strong. And so I felt like it was good to good to go.
1: Build that foundation personally and then find someone that has a foundation yeah. that is similar but adds to yours kind of. I love yeah. that that imagery of pillars and building up a strong structure.
2: Yeah. And the time to get married is never when your self esteem is low. If your self if you've had a hard hard time or something else and you're down on yourself or that that's not the time to be looking for a spouse. Yeah. It's it's the time when uh when you're feeling good about who you are and what you are and yeah. and your life is in order, that's the time to go find someone that uh can make you even better.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to also say, you know, it's find that spouse that makes you feel better about yourself yeah so when you aren't in those times of you're feeling down on yourself or, or your confidence isn't as strong you have that someone who is you know to continue with the metaphor of pillars it's putting mortar back on your pillars to make those pillars strong again or yeah. or, or setting those pillars back up for you yeah. um, i love that i love that idea
0: yeah um, yeah well we've gotten to no know derf a little better um I could definitely, you know, we could stay here and talk about your teaching career, or we could jump into one of the stories we listed. I'm looking over at Lexi. Did you have any questions?
3: No, I like hearing the mission device. It's all nice to hear, especially um especially knowing that, like, you had to wait till you were 19 to go on your mission, which is something that, like, if I wanted to go on a mission, I'd have to wait for. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to like see how that pans out for different people because like i know my brother he just he got to graduate and he got to go on his mission right away but i have to like figure out like what am i doing with school like like what's going to happen within that one year of graduating to the point that i actually can go on a mission and i
2: don't that's think that's a bad thing like i think that actually you know at least you're not 20 i used to be 21 for girls yeah and 19 is really um helpful i think now so yeah, you'll figure that out, man. I think you'll find that that'll actually be helpful.
0: How is Brandon doing now? I haven't heard from him in a couple of weeks, man.
3: Um, I think he's good. He, he's his emails, stud. man. You got- he is stud. a stud. <laughs> uh,
0: he totally tries to throw you off on his emails oh though.
3: Goodness.
0: Yeah. Didn't he, what was the last one It was?
3: Well, I don't like two weeks ago. He was like, we brought the devil to church or something. <laughs> 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 It was crazy, but my mom, my mom's been trying to like clickbait him in text, So like, she sent him some really weird texts the other day, and <laughs> she kept asking me. She was like, "Wait, Lexi, is this good clickbait?" <laughs> it's really funny. She
0: sounds like me because i I ask you guys slang, and am I using this right?
3: No, my mom was like, "Should I use this like, or this one, or
0: like,
3: are, are two of them like too much?" I'm like, "Mom, you're overthinking it. Just send the text."
0: Teaching Amelia what clickbait is—that's awesome. <laughs> Well, Durf, I'd like to talk with you about your teaching career a little bit. And there's a story that you've told me a couple times um, that would be cool to go over again. Because teachers tend to give referrals, but you didn't. In fact, there was only one, right? One, yeah. Tell us more about that.
2: So I, I ended up teaching for 36 years. I started in 1982 and um, taught five years in Idaho, near Twin Falls, a, a school with about 400 kids in it, Filer High School. And I loved that school. Filer, Idaho. Filer, I've Idaho. Idaho. I've
3: been
1: there.
2: <laughs> I loved that school. Um, most of the kids were farm kids and they were probably 60% LDS kids and, and I coached the basketball team there. Actually, I coached the track team, the basketball team assistant football and assistant volleyball. <laughs>
0: Whoa. How big of a school are we talking 400, here? 400, 400 kids. kids. Okay. And, uh, and anyway,
2: I, I really liked that school. Um, and then from there, I, I just wanted, I had these plans for coaching. I wanted to end up at a college. And so I wanted to go to a bigger school and and uh, ended up seeing an opening with the same area code that my wife was from. And it ended up being three hours from her folks home. But We ended up down near Fresno, California for five years, taught there. And um, while I was there, I taught and was also the activities director, which was a cool thing. But it was while I was there in 1987 that a little gal came into class and was having a bad day. I learned early on that when kids aren't nice to themselves or each other or someone else, it's usually because they're having a bad day. You never know what, what went on in their home before they left, but it's usually something internally but she was having a bad day and she ended up spouting off and say dropping an f bomb can I say that on this podcast <laughs> and uh, sorry about that I'll click and, and, on the
0: expletives oh, yeah yeah so, uh, <laughs>
2: but it was one of those things that I couldn't just let go in front of the other kids and it was um uh, and so we talked I, I I didn't make a big thing there I just asked her to sit down and but after class I did talk to her and she ended up getting a referral because we needed to let the um vice principal know what had happened. And in my 36 years, that was the one and only referral. I taught for 26 years at Thurston High School, and I don't know what a referral form looks like. Um, people used to say, oh, you teach high school, it must be terrible. Those kids are, no, no, the kids were wonderful. I never, ever had an issue with discipline. Kids came in, we, we uh, enjoyed each other, and, and uh, I just loved, loved, loved teaching.
1: I think that's because you relate so well to just about everybody you come in contact with, DERF. You know, every uh, and the kids uh, still to this day, the, the seminary kids, myself being a kid, right? You know, yeah. we, all look, we all look up to you. You just relate to us, right? You're the you're the fun guy still.
2: Well, part guy. of it's because I was a renegade myself in high school. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell this story. My brother, who's you know, not much of a here we go, am, uh, was a 4.0 student, and my you know my dad, and mom, that they're very proud of that. <laughs> And I I don't know what my thing was. Maybe I thought, I I don't want to match that, or I can't match that, or I don't know. But I rolled through with a 2.4 and absolutely enjoyed school. And my dad often was like, why isn't Kevin here? Well, Kevin was skipping school. But I enjoyed life. I was never mean. I was nice to other people. I got my grades good enough to play sports. Um, And then my GPA in college was the same as my brother's. So something in high school I think I can relate to. Yeah. The, the renegade that's in, in everybody. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. Cause I, I saw Lexi's eyebrows go up a little bit like, really? Really? High <laughs> school's <about> okay?
3: <laughs> no, I think it, that definitely is a reflection on you as a teacher. Cause the students at Thurston, at least now, I, I don't know, but at least now they're kind of awful. But I'll see like the same group of students who will be totally like disrespectful to one teacher. Be like absolute angels to another. Yeah. And it's definitely something on the teacher's part. Um, and like how they are as a teacher and in person. It's just a lot more easy to like connect with them. And I never see trouble in those classes. Like the most I've had, there's like three teachers I can think of specifically that like they just get all the respect in the world and like their classes best atmosphere ever. And they'll just be like, Can you please stop talking? Like once every like five classes. Yeah. It's so I'd say that's definitely a reflection on you as a teacher because I would agree with the statement that the high school students
0: are. <laughs> well, they can be, I guess. Really
3: interesting sometimes. Yeah. I
0: I was curious about one thing because this came up in our episode with Kirsten Woodward too, that when there is a bully or somebody that is disruptive, it's generally the question is not why the behavior, but why the hurt? Because usually something's coming from their home life or from their experience at school. How do you kind of tow that line between addressing the behavior, especially if it's in front of a lot of people, but also trying to help them heal from the hurt that they're dealing with?
2: That's a good question. And I think that um, often you can see those kids early, like maybe even the first day, I would take time the first day of every class to kind of talk as a class to the kids, have the kids talk a little bit. And I could you could see those things. And and um, my approach was never, ever, ever to confront a person, a kid, in front of everyone else because then <laughs> it's devastating to them and they're going to react negatively. So my approach was always to very subtly have them hang back when kids were leaving to where it was just me and them usually it was a me and him sometimes it was a her but uh there's trouble boys there (laughs) but but it was an eye to eye thing where i would tell them that i appreciated the way they were that day first day almost everybody's good and uh that i knew we were going to get along well and i would try to relate and not uh, usually i would be very honest and i would say you're probably smarter than i am i'm going to try to teach this class i do know government and i do know history but there's a lot of things i don't know but i am glad you're in here and and appreciate that you know we're gonna get to know each other better and it was amazing the connection that came from those kinds of things those kids would never act out then. um so so it was it was I, maybe that approach you can't always have that happen sometimes things happen between kids too um but, but again, it was to, to try to deflect quickly and move on without embarrassing them in front of everybody else and, uh, and then definitely addressing it.
0: I'm learning a lesson there that if your first interaction with somebody is a disciplinary setting, that's probably not going to go well. Um, but if you've already established that foundation of friendship, mutual respect, that's where that's the game changer, I think. It is.
1: I think yeah. it is you feel like in those interactions with those with those students that your relationship with the Savior, the spirit helped guide some of the, those thought processes in your your uh, the, the way that you determine to interact with them. you know
2: there I, I think part of this too goes back to watching my own father who was kind of a master at at that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. he wasn't you wouldn't say, oh this he's so spiritual he was he was a coach, he was a good man but he didn't uh, wear his religion out there for everybody to see. He just was a good person, but boy, he could relate to kids. Yeah. And I admired him and watched him, became a teacher. I'm getting choked up a little bit because of him. But I look at that and also consciously in my life, I have reading the scriptures, you'll read things and, and consciously think, oh, that's how the savior did it. That's how he does it. Mm-hmm. And you know, and consciously at times with my own kids and, and also at school, yes, I would um, try to pattern a little bit of the behavior
1: after how he would pattern mm-hmm. the behavior.
2: So sometimes consciously, sometimes
1: unconsciously. Such a, such a profound thought of um, just trying to be a good person, right? You don't got to be perfect. No. Mm-hmm.
2: In fact, my, uh, my thought is this. People in general are turned off by other people who want them to think that they're perfect yeah. or know everything. Kids hate that. They're very turned off by it. And, and um, I think kids love to hear a teacher say, I don't know everything. Yeah. And, uh, and you guys, many of you are smarter than I am. But I will be able to teach you what we're talking about. Yeah. I had to do a, a disclaimer early in every class that I'm a bad speller. I am.
0: <laughs> and so if I'm doing stuff
2: on the board and misspelled, don't get so like, you know, don't psych out. Just tell me how to spell it right and I'll change it. And they, the kids like that. It's okay. Yeah.
0: I have to ask Lexi this too, because I wonder that, I, I feel like the vulnerability and letting people know you're not perfect is really key. But I also secretly wonder, are people thinking, this guy is a moron. Like he has no <laughs> yeah. clue what he's doing.
3: <laughs> no, I feel like that's definitely true. I think we like to see that like teachers or leaders also aren't perfect. And it's definitely encouraging, makes things a little more fun, like carefree and knowing that we all make mistakes, big or small. So I appreciate that.
2: You're very wise.
1: <laughs> very wise. Very
2: wise for your age, Lexi.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the point of that story is be a good person and try to be a yeah. good person and, and see people, uh, see people for what they are. And, and most people are good people. Most people are acting out. For one reason or another, that doesn't determine the type of person they are no. our job is to try to treat everybody with love and respect um, and then it's obvious in, in your situation durf that love and respect gets returned right when they when they feel that they're getting respected then
0: you know, no.
1: respect is reciprocated no.
0: well, we could stay on the stories from school or we could move on to something else. What do we want to do guys
3: I want to hear about seminary like you as a how seminary was for you when you were in high school attending versus oh my
2: goodness. your relationship with it now. Okay. <laughs> here's, some, here's some stories. Exactly. Right here. I'm so, sure of it. I still <laughs> remember my seminary teacher's name in Baker was Mrs. Williams. She was a wonderful lady. Um, truly very soft-spoken, and I, I thought she was just awesome. I was not a serious student. I just wasn't. I... Um,
1: now, Did you have release time? Was you, were no, you, no. It was, early morning. Yeah, it was early, early morning. Yeah, early morning seminar. Still, yeah,
2: yeah. And uh, so, so I went, and and probably, you know, I was not a hundred percenter, but I went often because my brother went, and I rode rode with him. Um, and I know I picked things up. I know that I learned things there. I know that I felt the spirit, but I was always looking for an angle. I was always <laughs> trying to flirt. <laughs> looking for an angle on how to be funny or whatever. And so I know that also probably at times I was disruptive, I tried not to be. Um, I know that by my junior year there, I went to seminary because there was a little sophomore girl named Shelly Allen and she and I started liking <laughs> each other and her dad was a rancher. So they lived about 10 miles out of town. And and uh, so I, I, I went to seminary early because I knew Shelly was gonna be there. And I, you know, she rode to school with me and. That's why I went to seminary, that's terrible.
1: Farmer's daughter. <laughs> Farmer's daughter, yeah. <laughs> Franch's daughter. Um,
2: so, but as I look back, if there's anybody my age, they're gonna remember things from seminary. We had stories of Tom Trails, it was this crazy thing. I remember a, a series called Like to Us. I still remember the music from that. It really made, it touched my heart, Like Unto Us, So the Savior Said. Um, so I know that I was touched. I know I felt the spirit from seminary, and I know that I learned things, and I know that it gave me a
1: foundation. I'm really, really glad I went to seminary. Me and you seem like we have some similarities in our seminary time there, <laughs> there, Kevin. Uh, I went to I went to seminary. I was not a very good seminary student. Um, I went to seminary every day early morning. I had my hooded sweatshirt on. I never took off my hood. <laughs> And I literally brought a pillow and a blanket. Oh, oh I'm
0: picturing it as a yeah, Washington I mean. Huskies hoodie, too. No, not, it was like
1: probably uh, probably a little bit of Huskies, a little bit oh, of Seahawks, something. Okay, yeah. I, I brought a pillow and a blanket and I was always in the back row. On greatest news, but you were there. I, I was there. I was yeah. there, man. But yeah, I, I was not a very good <laughs> seminary student, man. Okay.
0: <laughs> I got really good at, you know, I learned how to take naps in a second though. Oh yeah. 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 Like. My kids asked me, how do you fall asleep so quick when you need to? I was like, seminary, it started it. <laughs> start seminary,
2: continues on the mission,
1: and then in medical podcast, school, seminary man,
0: it does bring blessings. Yeah. Seminary, yeah. Well, we were going to talk about what it was like as a seminary teacher, too, Craig.
2: I, You know, I've had a lot of church callings because I'm old now, and we've all, we all get church callings. I believe um, my favorite church calling is a was and is and has been a seminary teacher um you know it's something to teach when you're teaching government and teach but to teach things that are eternal to teach things that matter to teach kids that are awesome like today's youth are awesome what a blessing it is to to teach them i i just think that it's a blessing and it's a sacred thing um so, so as far as seminary, when I, now I'm not a full-time seminary teacher, but I'm a sub, and I never say no. When, when I'm asked to sub for somebody, I'm happy to go in because I just love
0: that hour. It's good. One thing I've tried to ask everybody that has taught youth um, of this generation in some capacity is, what do you see that's special about this generation? compared to maybe mine and Jordan's or yours.
2: I, 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 you know, the word that comes to my mind is goodness. I just think there's yeah. so many kids that are just, they want to be good.
1: So much better than we were. I feel so I be- better yeah. yeah, so much better than we were I mean, for sure. I,
2: sometimes it feels like I was looking for, to get in trouble <laughs> yeah. and they're, they're just, there's just goodness. I think of my grandkids. I think of the kids that I know from our ward and from our stake, and there's just an innate goodness to them. And I know that that goodness came with them from the preexistence, that wow. they are who they have been for eons of time. And we're
1: getting to know them now. Yeah. Set aside for this time specifically.
2: Yeah. Maybe
0: it's, it, I'm just thinking too, as somebody who leads in any capacity, less about teaching youth of this generation how to be like us and more reminding them who they are. Yeah. yeah. Remind
2: them who they are. and never forget to learn from them too because they can teach us lessons that all the time are awesome
0: what stories do we want to jump into now
3: um maybe the knee injury
0: yes that's a good one
2: okay that was a pivotal time in my life so as i said i grew up the son of a guy that coached and i loved sports loved sports and um in fact, I thought school was there for sports, and then you went to school.
3: <laughs>
2: um, my sophomore year, actually, I go back ninth grade year. In Ninth grade year, I, I set a pole vault record, which was really important to me, because back then, junior high was still ninth grade, and then you go to a three-year high school. Yeah. And I, I loved football. I loved basketball. But me and some buddies, when we were little, started pole vaulting over our back fence. We had a bamboo pole. <laughs> And we would go, we'd go over our back fence. That, so there were three of us. How many injuries happened from that? That oh could gosh. not have gone well. It was, it was, yeah. There were a few.
0: So you were going <laughs> over the fence.
2: Over the fence, our oh back fence, God.
1: landing on yeah. On grass. Oh, okay.
2: Yeah. Did you
0: get splinters?
2: Uh, no. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and often we, you know, we would have to, you know, hit the fence with our feet or whatever. Okay. But when we got to <laughs> junior high,
1: I can't even imagine. Man.
2: That's we started vaulting. <laughs> The three of us and the poles were not good poles. They were aluminum. And the stuff we landed in my seventh grade year was sawdust. And then they got burlap full of pieces of of uh you know that stuff that's soft. What is that stuff? You Star- stuck pillows with it nice and stuff. Cotton? Foam rubber. Foam, foam yeah. rubber. Pieces of foam rubber. But anyway, I, I remember looking at that pole vault record and a guy had said it named Dick Sheehy, who was a great athlete, and he was like three years older than me. He ended up going to Oregon State on a full scholarship as a as a cornerback, defensive back. But that record was something I really wanted to achieve, and I ended up doing it. I beat his record and, and pole vaulted 11 feet 2 inches, and like three days later, broke my collarbone playing red Rover, red Rover and PE. But that pole vault record, I checked like a month ago, is still there. It it's has not stance. been beaten yet. Um, so it's, uh, I'm proud of that.
1: I'm but trying. Anyway. To, I'm trying to picture you landing in sawdust. Oh my
2: gosh. Well, by that time it was that foam rubber stuff, okay. but we were still <laughs> using not great poles. They were aluminum. Um,
0: there's so many videos online of those splitting in half now. Oh, yeah. oh my
2: yeah. gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It was bad stuff. Anyway, my sophomore year, I ended up, uh, that freshman year, by the way, Baker the town, I was in their basketball team played in the state championship of the big school division against Jefferson of Portland. And that still holds the record in the state of Oregon for the largest attendance wow. still there. 1972 um, still holds that record, but they played for the state championship. And then the following year, my sophomore year, I was starting on that team, which which was a really cool thing for me. I remember my first game was against Bora High School in Boise, which was a big school. It's my very, wife's
1: alma mater right yeah, there. Very intimidating Heck school.
2: Yeah. Um, but then the following year, my junior year, I was playing football. And, uh, and was playing free safety and ended up getting hit. My knee was just at the wrong spot and getting hit by a lineman who was blocking downfield and it tore ligaments in my knee. And back then it was a, it was a bad thing. So that happened in October. So my junior year of high school, no basketball, um, only about four football games and no basketball. And for me, that honestly changed my life. Um, Because for me, everything that I saw in the future was with sports. I I could pretty easily dunk a basketball as a sophomore. I was 6'2". I I didn't weigh what I weigh now. (laughs) (laughs) But after that knee injury, I could never jump. Like, I I always jumped off my left I could never jump like that anymore. And my lateral movement wasn't as good. and so I did play my senior year and, and still ended up playing quarterback in basketball. Um, I got an offer to, to be a, a quarterback at Rick's College. I actually had a football scholarship offered. But the basketball coach promised me that I would have a basketball scholarship. He said, I can only give nine. But by the time you know, school comes and whatever else, there's going to be 12 and you will be one of those. And so I turned down the football. And I remember going there to basketball and there were 80 some odd guys that they started with. And of course, nine of them had their, it was a basketball class, but from that class, he would pick his team, uh, had their scholarship. And we got down to 15 and I was still there. And then he cut three and I wasn't in that group. And, and I remember from that point, that's when my mind began to say, well, no wonder you need to go on a mission. And, and I think that that all stemmed back to that knee injury that that set the tone for the rest of my life which was a blessing and I I actually realized it then which I'm lucky I realized that I really thought that that was a blessing so that was my knee injury it was a bad deal um, at the time
1: you think that led you into coaching because you you weren't able to fulfill? I
2: was going to coach anyway I wanted to be a guidance counselor and a coach Um, I actually have a master's degree in counseling but I never really wanted to leave the classroom once I started teaching. Yep. But um, I always, I always wanted to coach and teach. So
1: I've never been coached by a by Coach Durfee on an actual team, but I've been coached by Coach Durfee on the golf course. No, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's not good. <laughs> no, and it's. Uh, I would have loved to have been a a student under you in any sport, man. You're a, you got you got a knack for teaching that kind of stuff.
0: I would love to, and you always shoot like five to 10 strokes better when Durfee's there.
1: <laughs> he's like, oh, just try this a little bit. and yeah. Sure enough, straight down the fairway. And, and then you beat me. That's good. He's smiling as he's walking next to you. Yeah,
0: yeah. He's he's happy when you beat him is. though. Not everybody is. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, I can't take that too seriously.
0: No, I have a story I'd like to go back to. This is from teaching again. But I think one thing you mentioned, you are proud of is that you were asked to be the commencement speaker several years in a row um, at high school and just wanted you to unpack that a little bit for us.
2: Yeah, you know, I was never chosen as teacher of the year. Those are always given by the principal and, and people like that. <laughs> and I never um, wanted to be given that by a principal. I always wanted to be given something by kids. And I think the gift that I was given was a gift by kids. And And after I left Idaho and went to California, I got a letter that um, spring while I was in California from the senior class in Idaho, where I had been the year before. And those kids wanted, they they actually had bought a plane ticket and flew me back to be their commencement speaker. What an honor. That was an honor. And uh, so then we got to Thurston. Um, Thurston has a tradition that they choose eight teachers, the senior class chooses eight teachers to read their names at graduation, and whatever teacher, as they're choosing those teachers get the most votes, end up being the commencement speaker, and, and I am proud of the fact that in my 26 years at Thurston, I went to 26 graduations. I was a reader 26 times, and, and four of those times, I was their commencement speaker, which, wow. which I, was, um, I just thought was a blessing. That was a good thing.
0: Do you remember what you spoke on at the commencement?
2: I do. I remember things. I remember certain things. I remember once talking about a kite, that kites um, are held up by strings. Sometimes I talk to the kids a little bit about, about rules and things in their life that um, they're going to think sometimes hold them down because they want to be so free. But often when when they choose all that freedom in reality, they're going to hurt themselves. And I talked about a kite, how the string actually keeps the kite up. It doesn't hold it down. If you let go of the string, it falls. And so that was one of the themes. I know one of the years, um, I I just talked about different things. I, I I tried to theme most of my things with kids about happiness, how to find happiness,
0: real happiness. I, I know, I think I probably know the answer to this, but, why was it so much more meaningful to have that recognition from the kids as opposed to your peers, which would be the principal and things like that?
2: Yeah, I just, because I think the kids know. You can't fool the kids. Um, other people, even teachers, are very seldom in other teachers' classes. Administrators are hardly ever in classes. But kids sit in there for an hour and a half every, every day or every other day, and, uh, and they know. You can't you can't fool them. It doesn't take long um, until they know. So I just have always believed that if you're going to when we're going to get any recognition, it should come from the kids.
0: Well, we could go into some other stories. What do you guys want to do at this point?
1: Kick me out. I would uh, one of the most fascinating uh, I'm not a native of of the of Springfield or Oregon. Um, one of the most fascinating things that I know about Durf is, is his time at Thurston, when he was uh, there for that Thurston shooting. Um, talk about that experience a little bit. What uh, what you were doing during that time, and how that's impacted you?
2: So, yeah, that was a that was a you know milestone milestone type event. Um, I was walking down the hall toward the office and, and I saw kids streaming out of the library. Um, and I remember them yelling, he's shooting, he's shooting. And my only thought was I knew my son was in the library. That's, he was a freshman and I, that's where he went. That's two minutes before the bell rang to go to class and I knew he would be in there. So it's really, really strange that I ran into that cafeteria. Honestly, weirdly, not even thinking that somebody's in there shooting people I ran in looking for my son. By the time I got in, um, he had already been tackled by a couple of other boys. He was changing his clip. He would already shot 50 shells. Changing his clip, and he'd been tackled. And I remember running and seeing a lot. There were 26 kids that had been hit by shells. And I remember running around to each one that was down looking to see if it was my son. And then going back to to the person I thought had you know, looked to me the worst. But early on in that event, there were five of us teachers in there. One of them was the health occupations teacher. He was a nurse and he knew what was going on. He began quickly to uh, triage. He hollered at me and said, Durf, we're gonna need, we're gonna have people coming here soon, which obviously that was gonna happen, ambulances, but I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. But he said we're gonna need names of every kid. He said, get a piece of paper and go around and get names of every kid that's down before they get here. Which was a really wise thing to do. Yeah. Um, or they would have been gone, you know, by and and so I did that. I think I'm the only person that actually went to every kid, because they were some in the hallway, some all over the place. Um and uh one of the boys that that died in that event. Was in my third period class would have been in my class that day, mm-hmm. um, and I remember going to him and and knowing that. It, I just remember the sadness of what his parents were going to feel. I remember the shock too, thinking I should be more affected. I know I was in shock of what was going on, but quickly those kids were taken out. One of them was the shooter. Which when he was, I realized, oh, that's the shooter, and I just thought he he's so young. That, I mean, he looked right at me and there was nothing. I mean, his eyes, there was nothing there. And I just remember thinking, Oh my gosh, he's so young. He was 14. And, um, I remember the days after that. I remember I slept with a nightlight for like two years. Um, I remember we kind of guarded the gates cause they didn't want a bunch of people in. And I remember a car pulling up to the South gate and I went over to it and, uh, Three kids got out, and they were middle school kids from Medford. And they said they'd driven all the way up, and they had a little, a little gift that they had made. Um, they said they wanted to deliver that. And so I took it from them, and they got back in their car and drove away. And, and as they drove away was the first time that I cried uh, because I thought, oh, my goodness. They drove three hours for a 10-second interaction. And now they drove three hours back. But I just remember feeling the humanity uh, in that moment. There was an LDS teacher along with me. His name was Bill Harris. Many people in our stake know Bill. And as we walked down the hall later that Monday, there was no school. And we commented to each other that we could actually feel prayers that were being offered for that place. And so anyway, it was a, it was, it was a tough day. It was tough. You know, in a, in a way I was one of the lucky ones. I knew very quickly that my son was okay. Yeah. There were people all over the city that didn't know for hours if their kids were okay. Um, grandparents calling from all over the country that didn't know, and in my own family, my wife didn't know about me, or there were no cell phones then, Um, or or a son. So our daughters, which I didn't realize, our kids in in elementary school were crying because they knew that daddy and Chad were there. They had no idea.
1: It breaks my heart. Yeah,
2: so it was a tough day.
1: How did, as a a mentor of students, were those first days, like coming back,
2: yeah, it was it was hard, and we had a lot of discussions. Um, kids were confused, they were scared, they were angry. Uh, it took a long time. It uh, we had for ten years after that, on that day, you know, a memorial, a cellar. I never went to those. I couldn't do it. I just didn't. I just couldn't do it. Um, because I'd been so closely involved in that, I just. It, I just couldn't do it. So, one of those things. It was tough.
1: Thanks for sharing that story. Yeah, I, I love the power of what you tell that story. I mean, you can read about it, but that's firsthand. And and listening here, uh, I started getting emotional listening to you tell yeah. that story because yeah. it was real. Right, and, and then it, and then the fact that you're still touched by that that moment of kindness that those individuals brought touched my yeah. heart. You know, the small things that people do yeah. can change the world, man. And there I are change. still
2: beams in the cafeteria. I could take it to you right now and show you three, three bullet holes that still have the shell That's in nuts. them. That nobody even knows are there because one of the kids had, was trying to run out the back door and got shot in the rear end. But uh, as he was tracing him out the back door, he hit that, he hit that beam three times. And, wow. And uh, I noticed that that day those things are still there. Wow. And as I said, it was just one of those things.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that. Well, guys, um, we have a few minutes left. We could hit some other stories. I had a couple of the questions I wanted to ask Durf as well.
3: Yeah.
0: What are those, well, Durf, I know you pretty well, and I've been consciously not directing a lot of the conversation here because I don't want to monopolize the show but one of your best friends Bruce Jones has described you as being Fred Flintstone essentially <laughs> and tell us tell us more what that means
2: well Bruce and I have this ongoing thing for 20 well for the I'm not 20 36 years Bruce Jones Steve Jones and I Um, We met within a week or two from when I first moved here, and we've been golfing ever since. I come to find out that Steve Jones's father and my father were college teammates, uh, basketball team at Rick's. Um, I I come to find out that Bruce Jones was living in Shoshone, Idaho, his parents, when he was born in the hospital. is Gooding, and uh, the doctor was Dr. Klingler, and that's the same hospital, same doctor that I had when I was born.
0: So oh, that's so I cool!
2: We're born in the same hospital. I don't even of, know
0: what you call that connection. But yeah, yeah. 2,000
2: <laughs> people. Uh, Steve Jones and I were sunbeams together because at, at, his dad lived in Gooding for one year while my dad was coaching there before they moved over here. So there was a connection there. Um, but I call Bruce Barney, Robert Barney, and he calls me Fred. <laughs> and I have no idea how that started, but it's a little good-natured.
0: See, I I just think of it as like, Fred is the more free-spirited of the two.
2: <laughs> maybe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people who see me in church probably don't know maybe how free-spirited I can be, but maybe that's a good thing.
0: Well, I, I have learned a little bit about your sleep schedule, just hanging out with you sometimes. Maybe getting up several times a night to go into the hot tub.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was in four times last night. Really? Oh, yeah. Why do you get in the
1: hot tub so many (laughs) times? I
2: I can't sleep. I'm a bad sleeper, and I can't sleep. And so I go there, and it relaxes me. And then I go back and fall asleep for about an hour and a half. And I wake up, and then I can't sleep, and I go back in the hot tub. And it feels great.
0: How many hours do you actually sleep at night?
2: I hate to say this. If I get four hours of real sleep, that's a good night for me.
0: Wow. See, I'm amazed because I see you having all this energy and me being like nearly half your age. If I get that amount of sleep, I'm dragging.
2: Yeah, I'm done. Oh, yeah. Done.
0: I, yeah. And we've seen that on the golf course. I'll, I'll be dragging after like a few hours of sleep and <laughs> Durf will just be there, chipper, making jokes.
2: <laughs> yeah. I wish I could sleep more and sleep better, but I, I'm a bad at sleeper.
0: If I'd, I'd like to know a little bit more about what being a bishop was like.
2: Humbling. How, how's that? Humbling. Um, I think that's another one that the Lord kind of prepared me for in a way, ego-wise, just like my knee. Because um, I was coaching and had coached and been a varsity basketball coach, and that was kind of my identity. And, and then Chad became a sophomore, and and it was going to not be fun for him because i knew he and another sophomore were good enough to start their sophomore year and had i been the coach the group of kids ahead of him would have made life miserable for him i had a good assistant at the time and so i determined that i was going to swallow some pride and resign and i did and we,
1: shockwaves waves through the school well it was to the program you know,
2: one of those year things yeah and, I, and so I resigned, and for three years, Chad played for varsity, and he started his sophomore year, and um, after three years, I then went back and assisted my old assistant, which which is Doug Paquette, and he's a wonderful guy and really a good guy. Um, so it was, it was in the middle of that time, while I was not coaching, that I got called to be a bishop, mm-hmm. and I knew instinctively that that's why my my ego was in check. There's something intrinsic about coaching and about sports in general. Just watch parents sometimes. It's almost off-putting, but there's, there's ego involved in sports that I don't like. And in a way, it's just there. I don't know how else to put it, but when I wasn't coaching, it wasn't there. I was able to concentrate on my teaching. That part of life was not important. Um, and, and I think because of that, I was able to accept and and be a bishop. And it was humbling to be a bishop. It was a wonderful experience, as you now know. Um, the first couple of months, it was so strange to have people call you bishop. But then after four or five, six months, it's like, yeah, I am. Because by that time, you've you've been in, in the battle, so to speak, and you, you are a bishop. And so you just take it on and you do the best you can. And I just remember being humbled when whenever I had an opportunity to help anyone through repentance, I was amazed that their faith would bring them in. And to put away ego and embarrassment and access the atonement, I I never realized bishops look at those individuals with admiration almost rather than with disdain. It was never disdain. It was always, I admire you for, because none of us are perfect. We all screw up, but it's hard to go in um, and repent. And I think it is for a reason. I think the Savior's church is built in such a way that repentance brings true change. It brings humility and it brings change. So I learned those things while I was while I was Bishop. That's
0: cool. And to add to that as well, the admiration that you have for people that come in, I think as a Bishop more than any other time in life, I've just immediately felt the Savior's love for somebody that sometimes I don't know very well. Yeah. And that can be a really powerful thing. Was there Anything in particular that you felt, as a bishop, you learned that you brought with you for the rest of your life afterwards?
2: I don't know. I think that as we go through life, our experiences arm us. We tend to add pieces of armor, like almost our bodies are magnets, and we just add little pieces of armor to us. And I know that that experience brought things to me that um, mm. are part of me today, that wouldn't have been part of me. I think every calling we have and every experience we have bring us that type of, that type of armor to help us continue to walk the path and be able to dodge the arrows, <laughs> slings mm. of, the, of, the, of Satan.
0: Was, um, it, was yeah. it tough being released? Because I know for some people that can be a really um, pivotal moment
2: no, it was wonderful. Actually, <laughs> I remember my, for my mission. You know, there's a script that says, "There's a time for everything, right? The time and a season." It's time. I w- it was okay. I was it was okay, and I got called right away to be a seminary teacher after that. Oh, cool! Um, and and so I was just ecstatic. Uh, it was okay.
1: <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, it was time. I was done. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, we're at about time. We, are there any other stories you guys want to dive into here or questions? for? I
1: don't think I got anything else for you, man. Okay. Awesome. Well,
0: I always end with the same question. The show is called The Connection, and our final question is, how has being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints helped you better connect with our Savior Jesus Christ?
2: well i hope i'm connecting i um uh, i think when we're privileged to be members and we have a, a true prophet we have scriptures we have all the tools to help us to connect um, one of you know we don't share patriarchal blessings but there is a statement in mind that i will share and it says that as i As you grow older, the gospel will become more, more dear to you and you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is true. And that is true. I have seen that and feel that uh, come to pass with me. I just don't doubt it. Um, I don't doubt the savior. I know, I know we owe everything to him. You know, there's that scripture that talks about um, that we are saved after what is it? How I can't remember. Can't By grace, away. after all By we grace, can do, after yeah, all we do. can do, and we're not good with that scripture because we think, oh, we can do stuff. No, we can't. Because as you go forward, there are several, several scriptures that says that we do nothing, we can do nothing. Everything we do relies on Him, and and there's a great scripture at Alma that says. All we all we can do is repent. That's what we can do. And that's what that scripture means. We're saved by grace after all we can do and what we can do is repent. That's all we can do. All we can do is repent. And he takes care of everything else if we repent. And so I know there is a connection. I know that uh, you know think about callings in the church and how often we're not good and fulfilling our callings totally. Well, he did. He had a calling and he came and he fulfilled every single bit of what he was called to do. And it saved all of us if we will repent and, and be humble and follow him. So that's my connection.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Darafit. It's great having you on the show. We've been looking forward to this episode for a while. And I think a lot of touching moments where we felt the spirit um, Jordan, thanks for being a guest host. It
1: was a privilege to be here with, uh, so, with the DERF.
0: What do you think? Would you come back or would you do I it again?
1: I'd do this again.
0: Did you have fun?
1: It was a good time. Oh. Yeah, it was a good time. All good right. setup. Yeah, it was a good
0: time. Thanks for being here, Lexi. Yep. Sacrifice
3: so much to be here. Got a girl It's <laughs> <would be> awesome. <laughs>
0: I'll just say we said the word connection several times throughout the podcast. So I'm just saying. I feel it's like, so
1: connected right now.
0: It's, it's like when you say the name, the movie title in the movie. It's exciting <laughs> just to me. All right. We'll end. In this episode of The Connection Podcast, we're on most podcast carriers. So please like and subscribe. The show's art is done by Joel Boreen and the music is provided by Drew Boreen. We look forward to connecting to you next time.